What makes a brand live, last, prosper, or self-destruct? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Consumers have a love-hate relationship with their brands, sometimes all at the same time. And sometimes they're just indifferent to the name products that flood the marketplace. So what are the qualities that determine how we feel about brands? And what does it mean to be a brand today? It's no easy task to keep your product alive and loved by the buying public, according to my guest today, Deb Gabor, CEO of Saul Marketing. She'll tell us about the secrets behind establishing emotional connections between brands and consumers and how the fundamentals of brand protection and promotion are changing in the age of the Internet, social media, and, most of all, Amazon.com. It's all about the creation of what she calls irrational loyalty on the part of the consumer, or irrational loathing, for that matter. We'll learn how brands can stay fresh and relevant in these rocky times for merchandisers. So here is my conversation with Deb Gabor. Deb Gabor, welcome to the show. Hi. I'm glad to be here. Deb, what does it mean to be a brand today versus what it used to mean? So when I first studied branding back in the Stone Ages, we thought that brands were something that facilitated cognitive decision-making for people, that brands were just about a logo or a name or a likeness or something that showed up in the marketplace that told the story of the brand, but the story of that brand being the product, service, and organization behind it was really made up of cognitive things, we'll say. So so the product itself, where the product was available, the price of the product, and how the product was promoted, what those of us who are old school marketers used to refer to as the four P's of marketing. In today's day and age, a brand is so much more. And a brand is kind of like the core DNA of the organization behind the product or service that they're offering. And it's an emotional connection. It's a relationship. It's a set of memories. It's expectations. But most importantly, a brand is a magnet that's designed to draw to it customers who share beliefs and values that are similar to that organization that stands behind the product or service. So a brand has evolved and it's become something that is designed to really tug at people's emotions, whether that's a B2B brand or a B2C brand. It's something that's designed to make an emotional connection with someone that then facilitates the cognitive decision-making of yes or no, I want to buy this product. 
Well, that certainly was the attempt of advertisers over the last, say, 50 years. The ads always show the person in the ad having an emotional experience with the product. But branding back then was communicated in terms of advertising jingles and billboards and newspaper ads, and all of which mean nothing to us anymore. So how is the brand communicated into the minds and brains and emotions of people today? What are the vehicles by which a brand makes itself known? So all of those things that you mentioned, which is television advertising or outdoor, out of home, could be newspaper or magazine advertising or even digital advertising, the songs and jingles and the way the brand actually shows up are part of the way the brand makes itself known to people. But the most important way that brands now are infiltrating people's minds and hearts and frankly, their wallets is just how they show up in the world with their actions. And so an example might be, there's been a lot of conversation recently about gun control. Uh, What happened in Parkland, Florida a, a couple of weeks ago with a school shooting, a lot of brands took action specifically either to distance themselves from the NRA or to discontinue or change the way that they sell firearms in their stores. I think about Dick's Sporting Goods, for instance, one of the brands that showed up and said, hey, we're actually going to take a really hard line on this. We're not going to sell firearms anymore in our stores. They took a very, very hard look. They made a stance. They made an outward play. They behaved a particular way in the market. And that's what's distinctly different about branding today is that brands show up with actions. They actually behave a little bit like people. They have attitudes, they have behaviors, they have communication, they have personalities, they have essences, and they can do things that human beings can do today. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, it does. It seems like, though, as people, we have forced brands into that position. We now have expectations of brands that not only they be quality and the right price and everything like that, but they also be socially responsible. Now, that probably goes back to, I don't know, Earth Day in the 1970s, but it seems to have built progressively over the years to the point where we do have those expectations and brands are forced to respond, right? Not all brands have the expectation or bear the expectation that they need to be socially responsible. This goes into a whole other uh, subject about the social responsibility of business, if you are a a big fan of that conversation. But brands themselves, they make very, very conscious choices now about whether or not they're going to be socially responsible beyond like the basic social responsibilities of business, if they're going to be socially responsible, if they're going to be cause-oriented, what causes they're going to align themselves with. It's becoming increasingly important, however, that brands outwardly state their purpose to the world, especially as our Gen Zers and millennials are coming of age and becoming a, a very, very important cohort in terms of their purchasing power because millennials and Gen and Zers are, are looking for brands that are purpose-driven or they do outwardly state what their purpose is. But not all brands choose to align themselves with social causes or show up in the world as socially responsible. Some brands do exist just for the sake of existing, for giving their customers some kind of benefit, which may or may not be socially responsible. But mm-hmm. the main point that I want to make here is that it is a choice. And you're exactly right that brands are faced with this choice today more so than they ever were. We are in the age of Amazon, and I'm wondering if the rise of an entity like Amazon, which itself becomes a brand, in some ways maybe even more important than the brands that 
are sold on Amazon. Is there a way in which Amazon has degraded or undermined the very notion of the traditional brand? So that's a really interesting question. And again, I could probably spend hours on the Amazonification of the world, if you will. So Amazon itself is a brand that has a promise. Their promise is you can get anything from A to Z via this platform. That's kind of the larger purpose of the organization is really streamlining that process that people can access whatever they want. Amazon has gone through this process of infiltrating what seems like just about every space that you can imagine. If you zoom out to 30,000 feet and look down, you can see where all of these seemingly unrelated pieces all have to do with Amazon basically taking over business, taking over the world, connections like Amazon having physical stores. So the acquisition of Whole Foods, the advent of Amazon's own branded store locations, which we have one here in Austin, Texas, right down the road from me that's getting ready to open. And I'm fascinated to see what they're doing. But then also Amazon getting into its own branded products in many, many categories. For instance, in the battery category on Amazon right now, it's an Amazon brand of batteries that actually leads purchase mm -hmm. today. So yes, selling on Amazon can degrade someone's brand if they don't manage that relationship with Amazon or if they don't manage the way that goods and products are sold on Amazon. There's many different ways that brands can be on Amazon and it's almost a necessary evil. One way is to go whole hog and Amazon basically resells your product as if they're just another retailer. So they buy the product from you wholesale, they sell it, but they get to control the marketing and things like that. Another way is when your brand is sold through third-party sellers on Amazon. So Amazon just doesn't sell by itself, but there are literally thousands of third parties who could be selling your goods and services where the more disintermediated your relationship is with the consumer, the less control you you as a brand have over the total consumer experience. So that's where a brand can become degraded or pricing can be adjusted where I'm sure you do this. I do this all the time. I go on to Amazon if I'm looking for something and I'll look for the lowest price. And often the lowest price is not coming from the brand itself. It's or coming from Amazon. It's coming from a third party that's using Amazon as a platform. So you lose control over that. And so there are many brands that have backed away from Amazon as a platform. They're just basically holding Amazon at arm's length and saying, no, we're not going to sell goods and services over Amazon because we don't want to dilute the impact of our brand and how we show up to our consumers. And so that's kind of an interesting thing that's going on right now. Yeah, but, to, but to back up to the Amazon brand part, is, is that any different from the rise of the private label or the house brand in a big box store like Walmart? Is it just more a question of scale or is it different in kind as well? Huh, I think it's a lot different. And here's how it's different. And this is one of the nuances that a lot of people are not aware of right now. So if you go back to that acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon, I believe that the data that Amazon is going to gather on what brands are being purchased, both in physical stores as well as on their website, that's going to give Amazon more information, more data, more power to dial up their own brands. Right. And that has the power to completely change the entire landscape for CPG branding and pricing and things like that. So, yes, it's like the rise of the private label, 
But what we have that's very different from the, I'll call it the first coming of private label branding, what we have that's so different is all this data and this information about what people buy, where they buy it, how they buy it, what prices and promotions attract them, what are the relationships between what they see online and what they see physically in stores and what they see offline and how that impacts the purchase path and the customer journey. It's very, very different because we have so much more data now to be able to really dial in the launch of these private label brands. And I think that if we're not careful, Amazon is going to infiltrate more areas of our lives than I think that we we ever expected. I think disruption is going to continue to come and it's going to come from Amazon just because they have not just mass, they also have data. I can't make it through this conversation without bringing up your book from 2016, Branding is Sex. Get your customers laid and sell the hell out of anything. Would yes. you please explain what you mean by branding is sex? Sure, I will. And and it's ironic that we're on this interview today. I was scheduled for an interview with somebody else this afternoon who canceled after he read through my whole bio and saw that I wrote a book that had <laughs> a book that had both sex and a couple of swear words in the title. What branding as sex means is it's kind of a metaphor for the work that we do. Basically, what I say in branding as sex, and I say this all the time, is the idea that you have a brand whether you like it or not. I always tell people, I get up on the pedestal and I say, brand or be branded. And I hope through the process of reading this book that people learn how to actually create a brand. It's basically a how-to book. But the basic premises of the book is that brands don't exist outside of their customers. Your brand is not about you. Your brand is about them. And the shortcut for figuring out what your brand means to your customer and how your brand emotionally bonds with the customer and gets them to a place where they feel like they have to buy you is by creating these conditions of irrational loyalty. And when you think Mm -hmm. about people and things and brands and products and services and stuff that you're irrationally loyal to... And what I mean by irrational loyalty is this idea that you'd feel like you were cheating on a brand if you were to choose something else. They create this condition of irrational loyalty by being incredibly meaningful to their customers, meaning that they help their customers become the hero in their own story, in the story of their lives. And so where the branding is sex metaphor comes from is this idea of giving people the feeling that they have life on a string, that they have the world in their hands, they have wind in their sails, that they're at the top of their game, they're fully self-actualized. They can do whatever it is that they desire to achieve in this world. They don't just feel sexy, they feel like having sex. So when you think Mm -hmm. about when you are at the top of your game and everything is going your way and everything is amazing and great, you feel at your sexiest, randiest best. I grew up working with technology companies. Basically, the first two-thirds of my career was working mostly with technology companies in really unsexy spaces. A lot of these organizations were driven by engineering-oriented folks or software-oriented folks, very, very quantitatively-oriented people. And when my company would come in and we would try to help them create these emotional connections with their customers, they would glaze over. And what I found really unlocked the potential for very quantitatively driven, engineering-driven folks to understand the power of branding, I'd have to stop everything and look right in their eyes and say, all right, 
tell me again, how does this product get your customer laid? And that's where that came from. Let's extend the, uh, the metaphor of the human relationship to the shopper's <laughs> relationship, the consumer's relationship with the brand for a moment. Sure. Let's say that is in every mature relationship, there's a point, let's face it, where that kind of huge passion goes out of the relationship and is replaced with a sense of comfort and familiarity. <laughs> is there room for that to happen with the brand too? Or are we so hyped up in our consumerist world today that it's got to be passion, passion, passion all the way in order for a brand to keep the loyalty of the user? That's a great question. And I like that you continued the analogy. You obviously studied up on this. Yeah, there comes a time in every relationship where things start to get kind of squishy and stale and comfortable. And it feels a little bit less like a stiletto heel and, and maybe more <laughs> like a really comfortable house shoe, right? And mm -hmm. brands need to be paying attention to what's going on with their customers and understand what are the changes that are happening among those customers. And they need to be constantly and consistently meaningful to those customers. I can think of lots of brands that are in the graveyard right now that previously enjoyed these very, very productive, very meaningful, loving relationships with customers, but they weren't paying enough attention to those customers and how those customers were changing and how those customers' worlds and lives were changing and, and just how the world around them, different products and services and, and things like that that were coming to market that were disrupting their markets. And then all of a sudden those brands Brands were gone. So brands need to, I use the analogy of fraternity rush, keep rushing our pledges. Customers aren't just your best customers when they first become your customer. You have to always be relevant to them. And that means talking to them on an ongoing basis and checking in with them and understanding what their feelings are like, asking them questions about what does it say about them that they continue to use this brand, asking them what is the singular thing you get from this brand that you can't get anywhere else. And that's the hardest question to answer. And that's where mostly brands, when brands do fall out of favor, it's because because they haven't really kept up with delivering something singular. They've opened the door for mm -hmm. other brands to, to imitate their benefits. And then the third question that they need to be asking on a consistent basis is, what is the story you're telling for your life? And how does our brand make you a hero in that story? If customers can't answer that question, then that brand is in trouble. So the process of branding is not a one and done situation. It is an always on always happening activity that is the responsibility of every single person in the organization. And the place where that conversation takes place today is probably social media, right? Oh, and heck if that's yeah. the case, let's talk about the fact that social media can be a boon to the brand and it can be the death of a brand, depending on how you handle it. How do you negotiate that narrow path between doing the right thing on social media and also being incinerated by it if things go south? <laughs> Yeah, when you talk about social media and social media's impact on brands, I think one of the brands that's top of mind for me right now that I really, really am thinking about is United Airlines, for instance. You'd think that they would have learned from last year when they <laughs> dragged that poor doctor off a plane, drawing blood, mm -hmm. etc. You'd think that they would have learned what the impact of social media is on a brand when you are silent. The biggest problem with what United Airlines did, and that's almost a year ago today, that that happened. The biggest problem with what they did was they let 
the conversation start and end on social media without contributing to that conversation in an honest, caring, and authentic way. They waited a really, really long time, and they let that story take on a life of its own. Well, fast Mm -hmm. forward, it's happened again. An airline that has the mission of being the most caring airline in the industry, and that's what they say, that's their purpose and their promise, for an organization like that, I believe that they mistakenly sent somebody's puppy to Japan, and then they killed another one by putting it in an overhead bin, right? And so the conversation took on a life of its own in social media. The interesting coda to that story there is that if you look at what happened this time last year with Dr. David Dow and that whole situation and the botched corporate apology, United Airlines lost something like $1.4 billion in value over the course of several days. But the really interesting thing that happened was three weeks later, they made an earnings announcement and they were more profitable than they'd ever been. And profits continue to rise. So for United Airlines, there's a couple things at work there. One is the fact that that hashtag boycott United movement It's not possible for people to completely boycott United if you really think about it because Mm -hmm. there's a partial monopoly on certain routes and certain locations and certain times of day. I know for me, as much as I dislike United Airlines as a flying experience, I'm sometimes locked into a travel experience with United because I need to be at a certain place from a certain place at a certain time and that's the only choice that I have available to me. So it's not truly possible for people to really vote with their wallet So to some extent, that contributes to the fact that United's profits haven't been impacted, at least long term. The other Mm -hmm. interesting thing about that is that we as consumers tend to have a really short memory, right? Yeah, we're on to the next thing pretty quickly. We are on to the next thing pretty quickly. So in the last couple of weeks, we had United Airlines. We had some screw-ups from Uber. We had Dick's Sporting Goods and Delta Airlines and the NRA and a couple banks in the South. and Now it's it's Facebook this week. Facebook, uh, yes, absolutely. We forget and we're very, very much on to the next thing. That's the thing about social media is that having a finger on the pulse of the market market-level conversation that's taking place on social media is really, really important. Getting into that dialogue in a productive and forward momentum-oriented way is important for brands. Starting a fight and riling people up is not necessarily the best thing to do. But if brands are going to participate in that conversation that's taking place, they need to do it in a very thoughtful and deliberate way. And they have to use the medium to help them convey their values and beliefs as an organization and do it in a real, and I keep saying the word authentic. And what I mean here is with a very caring and sincere voice that isn't off the path for where the brand is going, if that makes any sense. We're just about out of time, but I just got to ask you real quickly, just one final question. And that is, can an old or failed or tired brand recover or does every brand have a lifespan? So there's lots of brands that I can think about that I think are legacy brands where there's a lot of equity in those brands because they've been around over time and they haven't always, always, always been at the top of their game. And I think about brands that have staying power 
And those are brands like Coca-Cola, for instance. That's a brand that has a lot of staying power. We have in the modern age, I would say that legacy brands and brands that have a lot of lasting value to them, maybe of the modern age, are brands like, say, Target and to some extent Walmart. These are brands that are very, very consistent in their strategy. They're consistent in their communication. They're very focused. They have a really good knowledge of who their ideal customer is, and they're constantly reinventing themselves to stay relevant and keep up with customers. And there are many, many brands that I can think of that have been around for a long time that I think will be around for a long time. I used to work back in the day when I had a job. I used to work for a company that (laughs) measured the equity in brands. It measured like the top 100 brands in the world every year, and it would issue a study and results. And when you look at the brands that are on that list, the top of the list has changed a little bit. In the last couple of years, we've seen brands like Microsoft and Facebook and Apple and Google. We've seen those brands make the top of the list. But then there's some mainstay brands that have been on the list for a really, really long time. Wells Fargo, believe it or don't, Marlboro has been on there for a really long time. Coca-Cola has been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you can see that there are brands that for whom the brand, the equity that's in the, the brand, the unaided awareness and top of mind awareness they have, the goodwill extended by those brands, even if people don't use those brands, the profits and the demand for those brands is something that has lasting impact. And those brands are sort of perennial favorites and they're on the list year after year after year. So it's about consistency. It's about focus and it's about ongoing relevance. It's also about mass, meaning they have a really big footprint. And it's also about top of mind awareness. When you think about something in any category, what's the first brand that comes to the top of your mind? That's how those brands get on and stay on that list year after year. Okay. Well, Deb Gabor, I want to thank you so much for a fascinating discussion about the state of brands today, where they've been and where they're going as well. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You asked great questions. That was my conversation with Deb Gabor of Saul Marketing talking about the secrets of brand protection and promotion. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.